It's easy to look back on our trip to Cuba and see it as an adventure, but it certainly didn't feel that way at the time. I was scared to go, and here's why. Back in 2014, when my partner Nina and I were planning our trip, tourism was technically illegal for U.S. citizens traveling on their own. A visit to Cuba was only permitted if the reason fell into certain categories related to religion, educational institutions, family visits, government activity, or research of some kind. So let me tell you how this trip to Cuba came about. Nina and I had both been looking forward to our yearly vacation abroad, and we were searching for a new destination. One April morning, we were eating breakfast at our home in Mill Valley, California, and Nina's face lit up with excitement. She looked much younger than her 69 years as she talked about our upcoming travel plans. You know, we'll be in Miami for the unveiling of my brother's gravestone, she said, and picked at at the scrambled eggs on her plate. What if we fly to Cuba from Miami? It's only a one-hour flight. We've always loved to dance to Cuban music. We can read up on its history and culture. Then we can experience the country firsthand. Sounds great, I said. But are Americans allowed to visit Cuba? I asked between spoonfuls of oatmeal. I don't know, but we can find out right now. We cleared our dishes, got on my laptop, searched the web, and saw that there were legal issues involved with going to Cuba. So we hunted for a travel agent who could help us and finally found one in Miami who specialized in arranging Cuban trips for Americans. We called her, told her about our plans, and she was warm and friendly as she talked about the legal preparations that would be needed. It's important for you to follow my instructions to the letter. We want to avoid any trouble with both the American and the Cuban authorities. You will need to apply for a license to travel there and always carry a mission statement that explains the purpose for your visit. It's very unlikely, but I have had clients who were stopped, interviewed, and then fined by the immigration authorities when they returned to the States. The first step will be to apply for a research license. When I told her that Nina was a psychologist, she said, Nina should have no trouble qualifying. There are all manner of things that she can investigate in Cuba, like the child care issues that families experience. What kind of work do you do, Mort? I design and develop websites. That's not helpful. Your skills are useless in a country like Cuba. Non-government websites are completely illegal there. Her words disappointed me, but after thinking for a few moments, I said, I have a fascination with classic cars. I see them as wonderful vestiges from the past. What if I go to Cuba to investigate their old car community? That should work, she said. Her voice had a buoyancy as she continued to talk. The streets of Havana are teeming with American-made cars from the 1950s. I'm sure you'll enjoy riding in one. 
I sure will, I said, as we ended the conversation and agreed to, to talk again soon. Of course, we are really going to Cuba on vacation, but the licenses would validate our trip and they should satisfy the authorities. We submitted our applications and the licenses were granted. We bought airline tickets, made hotel reservations, and within one month had completed all the arrangements for a one-week stay in Havana. We decided to limit our stay to that city. As our travel date approached, I started to feel uncomfortable. We could run into trouble with the authorities. The licenses were no guarantee that there wouldn't be legal issues. The immigration people could fine us or delay our return to this country. And what if we ran into issues with the Cuban authorities? The travel agent had told us to carry mission statements to explain the purpose for our trip, and I decided to take additional steps as well. I set up a website for a vintage auto club called Rusty Dreams and bought the website domain rustydreams.com. Then I wrote a piece about my travel plans and the different vintage American cars that I was hoping to see there. I posted my story on the website and added a photo of a 1948 Maroon Packard to the home page. I printed 50 Rusty Dream business cards with the packet photo, Packard photo in the upper right corner and planned to carry them with me to Havana. I was happy with the new website, and when I turned it live a few weeks later, my fears lessened. I finally felt ready for our trip. Upon arrival, we exited our plane at the Havana International Airport and walked down the metal boarding stairs into a hot, muggy, overcast August day. We hopped on a small bus that took us to the main terminal, and we were greeted by a madhouse of noise and people milling about in every direction. We managed to weave our way through the crowds, and thanks to Nina's Spanish-speaking skills, we were finally able to locate the kiosk where our hotel driver was to meet us. He wasn't there. After waiting for half an hour, we wanted to call the hotel, but didn't have the number. We were getting ready to leave to find a taxi, which would have meant dealing with the mob of people everywhere, and were very relieved to see our man finally show up, smiling, 45 minutes late. We had reservations at the Hotel Nacional de Cuba, a venerable old hotel overlooking the water in the northern part of Havana. It had a commanding view of the Havana Harbor and city. From our hotel room, we could see American-made cars from the 1950s zipping by on the Malacan, a roadway and seawall that stretched for five miles along the coast. Opened in 1930, the hotel building showed its age, but still exuded a certain comfortable elegance, charm, and time-worn majesty. Walking into that hotel with its stylized columns, grand chandeliers, and tile floors felt like stepping back in time. 
The Nationale had been a popular destination for movie stars of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Pictures of Errol Flynn, Ava Gardner, Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra, Walt Disney, Winston Churchill, and many other famous guests who had stayed there adorned the walls behind the reception desk. It was exciting to be lodging at a place that held so much history within its walls. The outdoor grounds with their many gardens and trees overlooked the sea and appeared to be well taken care of. There was an abundance of white, yellow, and pink mariposas, Cuban's national flower, which gave off an intoxicating perfume. On several nights, we lay back on comfortable chaise lounges and enjoyed the warm summer evenings as well as the hotel musicians' music. During our time there, we found much to love about Cuba and much to abhor. Let's talk about the good stuff first. The people were wonderful, warm, open, and friendly. Most Cubans spoke English, and we were welcomed everywhere we went. One Sunday afternoon, we came upon a street where people were dancing to their music. A young black-haired woman in a bright red dress danced over and motioned for us to come with her. Please join us, she said. I put down my knapsack, and Nina and I started dancing to the salsa music of five musicians and a bongo drummer who were standing in the middle of the street. It was such fun, and we all were laughing. After a while, we sat down on some steps to rest. A smiling young man approached us. He was holding a light brown guitar with hand-carved textured wood on its face, and for ten minutes he serenaded Nina. On another day, while strolling through a large park in the central district, we were walking near a tall, young couple in their twenties. They turned to us and said, Hello. We started chatting and eventually moved to a nearby bench. Later, we crossed the street to a bar where we ordered drinks and continued our conversation there. They had beautiful dark skin and were dressed alike in loose-fitting shirts and jeans. Nina and I talked about our work and our life in the States. They shared stories about the hardships of life in Cuba. The woman taught English to junior high school students. He washed dishes at a government restaurant, and they found it very difficult to support themselves on their meager Cuban wages. We had a lovely time talking to them and offered to stay in touch after we returned home. Yes, we would like that very much, the man said. She smiled and nodded. We exchanged email addresses, and then they asked if we would be kind enough to help them out with some money. We felt sorry for their situation and gave them $10. Over the following days... We enjoyed walking around and exploring the dusty streets of Havana with its many shops and pastel-colored buildings, huge colorful murals, and posters of Che Guevara. We could smell the sea air, sugarcane, Latin spices, blossoming fruit trees, frying oil, Cuban cigar smoke, and black car exhaust. 
The weather in the high 80s was hot and humid, and I was glad to be wearing shorts. The streets and doorways were filled with happy, chatting, buoyant people, eager to escape their crowded apartments. Locals played dominoes in parks, children played with balls in alleyways, and salsa music poured out from the bars. There were endless shops offering a variety of high-quality arts and crafts, including paintings, sculpture, wood carvings, Afro-cultural masks, jewelry, hand-carved items, and, of course, Havana cigars. But we also saw run-down areas, crumbling infrastructure, and rubble-lined streets. Marble mansions that had once been magnificent were now in dilapidated condition. The mansions were broken into small living units that housed many families. Colorful laundry hung from clotheslines that spanned their balconies and terraces. Times were hard for the Cuban people. Their poverty was evident everywhere. The government placed many restrictions on daily life. They controlled all media outlets, and access to outside information was restricted. Dissent was repressed and punished, detention was used to intimidate critics, and travel was restricted. Most of the labor force worked for the government. Opportunities for work were limited, and good jobs were scarce. Education level determined the types of jobs that Cubans could get. Low-level jobs included sugarcane planter, tobacco farmer, and security police. At the mid-level were the train and bus drivers and the restaurant and hotel-related jobs. University graduates became engineers, doctors, nurses, or teachers. Most companies were state-owned, government wages were low, and most Cubans lived a hand-to-mouth existence. Many people survived by selling black market items like Cuban cigars on the street. One day we hailed a light-colored cab to visit an outdoor market in the southern portion of the city. We chatted with the driver, a black-haired man in his 30s, wearing a light blue t-shirt. He was very open to talking to us about his life. I have a degree in software engineering from the University of Miami, he shared. When I came back back home to Cuba some years ago, I couldn't find any jobs in my field, so now I have to drive this cab to support my family. I could hear the bitterness in his voice. Did you see the doorman in the blue uniform at that small hotel where you were standing when I picked you up? He continued. I nodded. That's my good friend, Caden, and he's a mathematics professor by training. He has to earn his living by opening that hotel door for the tourists who come and go. I'm sorry to hear how difficult things are for you, I said. We do feel very safe as we walk around the streets of your city. It doesn't seem like there must there would be much crime here, I said. No, major crimes do not happen here, he answered. There are 2.1 million people living in Havana, and 1.5 million of them are either police or security personnel. 
One afternoon, we visited a government gift shop in the central square just before it closed, and we found ourselves alone with the store clerk, a balding man in his 40s in a white shirt and yellow tie. He was very open, friendly, and easy to talk to. What's it like to work and live here in Havana, I asked. In perfect English, he said, it's very difficult to get by here. We all struggle to afford the basic necessities. He walked over to the shop entrance, placed a Cerrado closed sign on the front door, and returned to the counter where we were standing. I was puzzled by his words. But the government gives you food and provides free medical care, I said. None of what they give us amounts to much. We get a monthly ration card called a libretta that entitles us to a bag of rice, uh, legumes, potatoes, and some low-quality meat, but it's not enough for any of us, especially those with children to feed. And yes, it's free to see a doctor, but treatments cost money. My mother needed heart surgery, and I had to pay $500 under the table to get her the care she required. Fortunately, my life savings were in dollars, not pesos, and I was able to pay it, pay it. There's a big market in Cuba for dollars. Many people survive by selling dollars on the black market to those who need them. After hearing such distressing stories, a high point for me was our ride in a shiny blue 1951 Studebaker taxi. The driver was a short man of 40 in an orange baseball cap and gray sweatshirt. I could see that he was proud of his old car, and at the end of our ride, I asked if I could look under the hood. He obliged. He raised the hood, took off his cap to wipe away some sweat, and said, Our country has world-class mechanics who can make these old cars run forever. Everything under this hood has been replaced many times over. He pointed to the engine. My Studebaker has a Russian engine, and this carburetor was handcrafted by my mechanic friend. All the American cars in Cuba have many Russian parts installed. Because of the American embargo, we have had to be creative to keep them running. Our cars are only American on the outside. Back at our hotel, a huge dining room table dressed in a dark green cloth offered a wonderful buffet for both lunch and dinner. The food offered to tourists there was plentiful, probably because the hotel was owned and run by the government. The meals blended Spanish, African, and Caribbean cuisine. Pork, beef, chicken, rice, and beans were typical main dishes. They were served with cornmeal, tamales, plantains, and black bean soup. Mashed black beans were part of every meal. Root vegetables were plentiful, along with citrus fruit and bananas. A real treat were the fresh juices squeezed from papaya, mango, pineapple, and grapefruit. We also ate at a few restaurants that were family-owned and operated. Nina still remembers one delicious dish of grilled red snapper. The government had recently allowed these family-owned paladares to exist, and they were becoming popular with tourists. On Friday morning, the fifth day of our stay in Havana, 
we were excited to hear about a special musical event to take place that evening at a nightclub in the downtown area, the Buena Vista Social Club, a famous ensemble of Cuban musicians, was going to perform. We had heard about their incredible musicianship that brought joy to all those who heard them play. So we made reservations. When Saturday came, we dressed up, me in a white linen shirt, Nina in a black print dress, and hopped into a cab that was sitting at the front of the hotel. When we arrived at the club, we paid the driver seven pesos. A few minutes later, a dark-skinned man took our tickets, and we entered a large, dingy room with a high ceiling and wooden tables that could be found in a second-hand shop. Cigarette smoke mixed with alcohol and body odor permeated the air. A long bar with bright lights stretched across one entire side of the club, and dozens of posters of Cuban musicians lined the other wall. Up front, a large wooden platform functioned as the stage, and 15 musicians, all in their 70s, sat waiting to play. Two women singers with microphones stood before them, and a small wooden dance floor looked out onto the tables that were now filled with happy, expectant people. We found seats by ourselves at a small brown table in the back and ordered a margarita for Nina and a pineapple juice for me from a young waitress wearing a white dress and a colorful beaded necklace. The music began and the musician's lifetime of performing was evident from the moment they started to play. Their skill and gusto lifted us off our feet the intense, dazzling energy of the women singers had people pounding their tables in time with the rhythm. Trumpets, trombones, and saxophones blared for three hours, backed up by bongo drums and Spanish guitars. When the singers finally left the stage, they joined the crowd on the dance floor. Their energy breathed even more life into the spirited salsa, rumba, and mambo numbers. Then they made their way through the club and continued to dance between the tables with the rest of us. We all had had too much to drink, and no one cared since we were having so much fun. But at exactly midnight, the music ended, and in appreciation, everyone threw up their arms and cheered the musicians. Smiling, Nina and I walked out of the club through the back door. It was close to where we had been sitting, and we found ourselves in a dark alleyway at the side of the club, surrounded by taxicab drivers. Quantos a Hotel Nacional? Nina asked. Diez pesos, ten pesos, they each said as she turned from one to the next. No, Nina said. We had paid seven pesos to get there, and she refused to pay any more to get back. The drivers all walked away, and we were left standing alone in the narrow, dark alleyway. I thought, is she crazy? Feeling a sinking sensation in my stomach, I said, great, what do we do now? I looked down the alley toward the main street, and there wasn't a car or person in sight. 
Suddenly, three stocky men appeared out of nowhere. Taxi? One of them asked. See, si, Hotel Nacional. Siete pesos. Seven pesos, Nina said. Okay, he nodded and motioned for us to follow them down the alley in the opposite direction away from the main street. Now, really frightened as we walked along, I whispered to Nina, there's no way I'm going to get into a car with those three men. But I didn't know what else to do. We finally reached the street and happily two of the men walked away and disappeared into the night. We were left with the driver, a fifty-ish man wearing dark baggy clothes. He had a full head of grayish hair and a worn-looking face that somehow perfectly matched his car. It was small and old, a black Russian Lada from the 70s. Those noisy, smelly cars could be seen on many Havana streets. This run-down car was our only option for getting back to the hotel. The driver opened the back door, Nina got in, and the whole car shook when he slammed the door. He went around to the other side and opened that door for me. I got in, and he also slammed it shut. Once inside, I felt along the back of the shredded fabric seats, but couldn't find any seat belts. The driver got behind the wheel, started the noisy engine, and we took off down the street. Looking out at the night sky, I had a general idea of our hotel's direction along the water a half hour away. But then the sky disappeared, and we were headed downward into a long black tunnel. It wasn't the way we had gone to the club. The only light came from our headlights, and they finally revealed an underground street. An endless line of large old trucks were parked on each side of the street. This dark street with its old trucks rose before us, larger than life, and could have made a dramatic movie set for some film. The road was unpaved and rough, the car had no shocks, and we bounced around at 50 miles an hour. My head hit the metal roof, so I leaned forward to avoid it. The driver started smoking. A white cloud of smoke blew into my face, and I started coughing. At that point, he drove faster, hugging the left side of the road. I was sure we would hit the trucks. Suddenly, my back door flew open. The driver rolled down his window, reached out with his left arm, and pushed it shut again as he drove. At that point, I felt nauseous, and my imagination ran wild. He could pull the car over, threaten to kill us, and steal our money. I turned toward Nina and could see that she had similar thoughts. Her eyes were frozen with fear. She took my hand and squeezed so hard that my hand hurt. This is the end for us, I whispered to Nina. Our lives will end right here in this godforsaken Cuban tunnel. I love you. The tunnel with its countless trucks seemed to go on forever. But then we were gradually moving upward, and the black nighttime sky came into view through the car's dirty windows. We were now back on the streets. 
I wanted to scream with delight when I saw the hotel's neon sign in the distance. The car was still in one piece, and our hellish half-hour ride was about to end. We zoomed toward the entrance and stopped abruptly at the front door. The driver opened our doors. Feeling enormous relief, we stepped out onto the pavement. We had made it back, and we were still alive. I reached into my pocket, paid the driver, and felt so grateful that I gave him a two-peso tip. Nice driving, I said. Gracias, he nodded, got back in his car, and sped off down the street. Our long Saturday night adventure had finally reached its end. I turned to Nina with a sigh of relief. Her words echoed my very thoughts. I want to bend down and kiss the earth under our feet. I feel so grateful to be alive, she said. For another few days, we explored Havana. Then it was time to leave. I wondered if I had PTSD from that car ride and was dreading the trip home because we would need to deal with the immigration authorities. Our travel agent had warned that they might pull us out of line for an interview at the airport. I had my Cuban travel license and mission statement ready, along with my rusty dream business cards, but there was always the possibility of being fined or worse. It was very scary. Fortunately, we encountered no problems. We waited in a line at the Miami airport reentry gate. The immigration authorities scanned our passports and we were allowed to return. No questions asked. Visiting Cuba was an exciting, colorful, educational, and fun trip. Looking back at our frightening experience in that Cuban tunnel, I can't help but reflect on my life and feel an enormous sense of pride. My parents lived their very limited lives in fear. They never did anything out of the ordinary, and they wouldn't let me do anything that I wanted to do. I felt totally squashed by them. I'm proud that I rebelled and have lived a life that's full and rich. I've had satisfying careers, traveled all over the world, and I'm happy with my accomplishments. Given my strict upbringing, to die in Cuba would feel like a final badge of honor. <laughs>